Hi folks, this is Ron Longwell, and I'm glad you're here today for another episode of the Jesus Society Podcast, a conversation exploring relationship, renewal, and purpose in the kingdom of God. This is episode 91 of the Jesus Society Podcast, nine more until we hit 100. And today I'm going to ask you to bear with me a little bit today because <clears throat> um, I am recording this um, I'm I'm kind of sick today, but I'm recording this while sick. I've got strep throat, as it as the doctor informed me yesterday. So I'm uh, I'm uh, feeling kind of kind of puny. So I'm not drinking coffee today. I'm instead sucking on halls, so that I don't uh, um, I'm not coughing the whole way through this. So um i may clear my throat more often than you'd like to hear and i may have to pause to pop a new halls every so often but um i'm just going to ask you to bear with me on all this um but i wanted to get this out because it um i, I think it's an important conversation this is going to be a little longer too so i'm i'm girding up my own loins uh, a little bit to 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 press through on this um so again, please just just bear with me on this. Um, today we're gonna uh, we're gonna continue talking about what happens when we die, and we've talked about purgatory, and we've talked about paradise, and today I want to address what I think we'd all agree is the most difficult piece of this, and that is the idea of hell or final judgment. And as I said uh, last week. Uh, and I'm gonna, and the week before, and I'm gonna say it again today. I think it's important that we get our thinking straight on all this, primarily so we can quit worrying about what happens when we die. I think we've, we've, most of Christianity, or much of Christianity anyway, has a, a, a compulsively obsessive focus on what happens after we die, to the point that the gospel is often framed in those terms. And I think I think that's a that's misguided. I think the point of Christianity has far less to do with what happens after we die than than what we do before we die. Okay, so I think we got to get squared away on that. So today we're going to talk about hell. So um, sit back, go to the bathroom, do whatever you need to do um, because this is going to be a this is going to be a deep dive. Okay, now before we, uh, we're gonna kind of build this um, because there's a there's a few little pieces that we need to bring in um, as as background or as tangent pieces that we that we kind of got to get in place uh, before we get into the meat of all this. Um, the first is is something um, related to what theologians call historical theology. In other words. Um, the history of certain avenues of thought. Because here's the thing. Most of us think that what we believe about this or that idea is simply because that's what the Bible says. Well, I believe it because that's what the Bible says. The reality is that most of us are kind of conditioned to believe, um, to, to read the Bible in certain ways, um, through the eyes of what we already expect it to say, through the eyes of what we want it to say, or in many cases, through the eyes of what we've been taught that it says. If you have been taught all your life that this passage says this or that the Bible 
um, as a whole affirms this, that's that's what you're going to believe, and you're going to tend to read the Bible in a way that reinforces that. And and that's not I'm not I'm not casting anybody um, into the fire on all this. This is a very human, natural human thing, right? We're we're conditioned to believe what we're taught to believe. Okay. And that is why, though, serious biblical and theological study is such an important discipline because it helps us move beyond what we're conditioned to think or what we've always thought and uh, see the Bible as it was intended to be seen and not just as we've been taught to see it. And that is a, that is a constant, um, it, it is a constant challenge. Um, we're always sort of pressing in to... to um, learning more and understanding more and and trying to wrestle with, well, what did the earliest Christians actually believe about this kind of stuff? And is it as is it at odds with what we believe? And why is that so? And what do we do about that? It's a it's it, it involves a constant a bit of constant work. Okay. Um, again, because if we if we grew up thinking that the Bible says this or that in this passage or that passage, it's it's just very, very hard to see beyond that. Even if the truth turns out uh, to be that no one ever thought that until, you know, recently or, you know, 500 years ago or whatever. And the reason I bring that up is because something like that has happened with the idea of the way we talk about or think about hell. And part of the difficulty of this topic, not unlike purgatory, actually, is that the word hell in most of our minds conjures up an image, and that image comes more from medieval theology than from the earliest Christian writings. In other words, the the, the picture that, that pops up in our minds when we hear the word hell was probably not a picture that most early Christians or really any early Christians had when they thought about that word. And we're going to talk about the word in a minute. Um, But it did come about in the same era that purgatory came about, okay? Um, Many Christians have as their basic understanding of hell either some kind of literal underground location full of, say, worms and fire and so forth, or some kind of just a a, a torture chamber uh, in the dungeon of God's kingdom palace. And I'll just say that for some people today, that has caused a real problem. That is a stumbling block. It is a a difficult um, thing. That, That picture of final judgment for a lot of people, is so unpalatable that they just can't make themselves to believe in a God that would work that way. And I, I, I want to say I understand that, and we're going to talk more about that later. But what I and others want to say is that in that case, it's not really the serious early Christian idea of final judgment that they're rejecting, but a, a, a gross caricature of it. So what I want to urge us to do today is let's all take a deep breath. Let's take a let's take a step back. Let's let's come to this discussion open-minded. Let's let's set aside at least for the moment what we think we know about this idea of hell or final judgment. And let's look at what the Bible and the earliest Christians actually say and believed 
about this idea of final judgment. Can you do that? Can you just suspend, uh, set your pitchforks aside <laughs> for a minute, and, and let's just go into this sort of open-mindedly and honestly, okay? And let's see what the Bible actually says. Now, let me just say as we begin here that I'm, I'm not going to be doing a, a thorough look into all the ancient beliefs about life after death here. There was a wide variety of beliefs in late antiquity, which is roughly two or three hundred years either side of Jesus, both among pagans and Jews, and it just would be impossible to cover them all here. So um, ancient ideas about the afterlife is a positively huge subject. And frankly, I don't have either the time or the interest <laughs> in doing that kind of study. But we need to talk briefly uh, about the word Hades before we talk about the idea of hell, because they're not at all the same word and they're not all the same concept, even though I think probably in our modern era, we think of them that way. The word Hades appears 10 times in the Bible Maybe most notably in Luke 16, um, the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, which we're going to talk about uh, a little more in a bit. But Hades in the time of Jesus was a part of Greek, Roman, and Jewish views of the afterlife, although they all had vastly different perspectives on all that. Boy, it is just raining all of a sudden. Um Originally, in ancient Greek, uh, Hades was the god of the dead and the king of the underworld. Uh, over time, I'm talking about a lot of time here, Hades eventually became uh, came to be thought of as a place uh, more than a person, and it was essentially where all mortals went when they die. And it's it's a bit like the, the Hotel California, you know, once you're there, uh, you, you're never leaving, Okay. Uh, according to Homer, uh, the ancient Greek author who lived about 700 years before Jesus, um, the dead became, when you died, you, you became a, a shade or a ghost or a phantom, okay? Um, they're certainly not fully human beings. They might sometimes look like them, but the appearance is deceptive since they can't be grasped physically, okay? Um, theirs is a, a shadowy and wispy existence in an underworld abode, even though they might occasionally appear to be living. And you can see this in Homer's Iliad, okay? But for Homer, the place that those creatures exist after death is Hades, um, which was just a shadowy, subterranean kind of place. And I, I point all this out, not because I think that Homer was necessarily right about all of this, but simply to say that Homer's views on this and a whole bunch of other things were hugely influential in forming how the people of his world thought about things. And that was true for hundreds and hundreds of years after he lived, okay? And the reason that many people still think about life after death in those terms, I think, is because Homer planted the seeds of those ideas in, in his culture, and they just have persisted on, okay? Now, as far as Jews goes, for, uh, go, um, for some Jews living in the time of Jesus, Hades was thought to consist of two parts or, or two chambers. Um, the first chamber 
um, in in Hades is a is a place of bliss, often called. Are you ready? Paradise, which we talked about last week. Okay, the second chamber in Hades is a place of torment, which comes out in the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, where the word Hades is is the word that's used there. And again, we're going to talk more about Luke 16 here in just a little bit. So, so in that view, when we look at what Jesus says to the thief on the cross next to him, which we talked about last week in Luke 23, 43, the paradise that he mentions there would not be heaven, as most Christians believe, but the but the pleasant side, the pleasant part of Hades, the place where the Christian dead wait for final resurrection, okay, in that view. Now, as we said last week, there are all kinds of questions about the afterlife that we are just not given the answer to in the Bible. As much as we would like and as much as we try to bend and twist passages to give us the answers we want, um, there's just not a lot of hard, clear answers there, okay? Because the focus of the New Testament, again, is bringing God's kingdom to earth as in heaven. And along those lines, the New Testament passages that talk about Hades just don't tell us a lot for certain. In fact, there are only three things that I think we can be sure of with respect to Hades. First, if Hades does exist, it is not a pleasant place to be at all, with the possible exception of the, the paradise side of things, okay? And it is certainly not uh, a place that the righteous followers of Jesus go, again, with exception to the paradise side of things. Secondly, Jesus makes it clear in Revelation 1.18 that he himself holds the keys to death in Hades. And then finally... Also in Revelation, at the end of the book, Revelation 20, verse 14, at the time of the new creation, both death and Hades will be thrown into the lake of fire and ultimately destroyed. And, and that is all <laughs> that we can say with any kind of confidence about this idea of Hades. Okay, so the most common word in the New Testament that is sometimes translated by the word hell is the word Gehenna. Gehenna, G-E-H-E-N-N-A. Now, the thing that you may not know, you, you may have heard, if you're a Christian, you may have heard of the word Gehenna, but what you may not know is Gehenna was an actual place. It was not an idea. Uh, Gehenna was, for all intent and purposes, it was the city dump outside the southwest corner of the old city of Jerusalem. Now, I've never been to Jerusalem. Um, excuse me for a minute. Um, I hope to go to Jerusalem someday uh, before I'm too feeble to travel. But I'm told that you, by some people who have been there, that you can go there today and there is a valley outside the city that even today is called Gehinnom. Okay? And again, it's the city trash heap. And that is the place that Jesus was referring to in Matthew 5, Matthew 10, Matthew 23, Mark 9, and Luke 23. All those passages 
where where Jesus talks about the word that's translated hell, he's talking about the smoldering fires of the city trash heap, Gehenna. And that is really, really important to understand because if we want to understand the point Jesus was making when he when he says that, we, we sort of have to have, like a lot of things, we sort of have to have a first century Jewish cultural understanding. What what would his hearers have heard when he said that? Probably, definitely not what we hear, okay? Um, and the point is, when Jesus was warning his hearers about Gehenna, he was not, as a general rule, telling them that unless they repented in this life, that they would burn in the next. And what's true about the kingdom of God is just as true about its it's opposite. It's primarily on earth that things matter, not somewhere else. So Jesus' message to his mostly Jewish hearers was stark. Today we would probably say it was kind of political. And the message was basically, unless they turned back from their hopeless and rebellious dreams of establishing God's kingdom on their own terms, mostly through some kind of armed revolt against Rome, then the Romans are going to come and they're going to do what large, greedy, ruthless empires have always done to smaller countries whose resources they wanted or whose strategic location they were anxious to occupy. Rome was going to come and turn Jerusalem into a stinking extension of its own smoldering trash dump. That's the point Jesus is trying to make to his hearers, okay? who were not 21st Western American, 21st century Western Americans, right? And that's why when Jesus rides into town on the donkey in what we normally call the triumphal entry, he did so, and this is a detail that Luke tells us that the other gospel writers don't tell us, he does so in tears. Jesus rides in not like some conquering hero, but he rides in in tears, and in tears, he says, Luke 19, 41 through 44, he says, if you had only known this day what would bring you peace, but now it's hidden from your eyes. For the days will come when on, on you when your enemies will build a barricade around you, surround you, and hem you in on every side. They'll crush you and your children among you to the ground, and they will not leave one stone on another in your midst because you didn't recognize the time when your God visited you. So there's a very, there's a very relevant first century message in all this. So when Jesus says, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish, that's the essence of what he had in mind. He was not really talking about the afterlife. Okay, And once we begin to understand that, we start to see that it's only by extension and with no small degree of difficulty that we can extrapolate from the many sayings in the Gospels in which Jesus articulates this urgent, immediate warning to the deeper question of what might happen after life itself. And the two parables that, that appear to address that question directly are the parable of the servants and the master at the wedding banquet, which is in Luke 12, 35 through 59, and the parable of the rich man and Lazarus in Luke 16, 19 through 31. But we have to remember that those are parables. They're not 
actual descriptions of the afterlife. And throughout scripture, we get into all kinds of weird problems when we start taking parables as literal descriptions about how things actually are. All right. So those two parables, they tend to use a lot of stock imagery from ancient Judaism, like the phrase Abraham's bosom, for instance, not to teach us about what happens after death, but to insist on justice and mercy in this life before death. And that's crystal clear in the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. The point is not about what happens after you die. The point is you better, you better take better care of poor people in this life. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that Jesus would have disagreed with um, uh, th- that picture uh, of what happens after death. doesn't mean he would have agreed with it, but that's just not the point we're making right now. But to take that scene of Abraham and the rich man and Lazarus in Luke 16 literally is about as sensible as uh, uh, trying to find out the name of the prodigal son, Okay. In both cases, we would be getting way off on a tangent and trying to force a passage to answer a question that really had nothing to do with the issue that Jesus is raising in the parable itself. Okay, The truth is that Jesus just didn't say very much at all about the afterlife because he was primarily concerned with announcing that God's kingdom was coming on earth as it is in heaven. So as much as we might like to, We just can't really look to Jesus' teaching for a a lot of fresh details about whether there really are some people who are going to ultimately reject God and, so to speak, have that rejection honored or ratified. All the signs, of course, are that Jesus simply went along with the normal first century Jewish perception that there would indeed be some people like that. But the only surprise would be the the surprise experienced. And by the way, sheep and goats are both going to be surprised, right, Um, at their fate and at the evidence upon which that fate was based. And and I'm referring to the, the passage in Matthew 25, 31 through 46, which indicates pretty pretty clearly that are going to fate that that our fate is going to be based on how we treat the hungry the strangers, the naked, the sick, the prisoners, those at the bottom of the heap. Jesus cares, God cares very much about that, okay? And all the early Christian writers, both biblically and extra-biblically, seem to go along with that. Um, Hell and final judgment are just not major topics in the New Testament letters, although when it does come up, it's pretty important. Uh, for instance, Romans 2, 1 through 16, where Paul says in part that God will repay each one according to his works. Eternal life to those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, but wrath and anger to those who are self-seeking and disobey the truth while obeying unrighteousness. Hell and, and final judgment, judgment just aren't mentioned at all in the book of Acts. And the vivid pictures that we see that sort of sound like that toward the end of the book of Revelation, even though they're pretty important, let's be honest, those have always been some of the most difficult uh, difficult parts of Scripture to interpret with any certainty, okay? So all of this should warn us against being too sure of ourselves here. 
And I'm talking both about the person who seems to know exactly who is and who isn't going to hell, as well as the person who's absolutely sure that there isn't any such place. Or if there is, it's going to be empty. Okay? So what I'm arguing for as we move forward into this discussion is a great deal of humility. Okay? Overconfidence and arrogance just don't help here at all. Having said that, we're not anywhere near done with all this. There is a lot more to be said about all this, so hang on. Okay, so one interesting thing about all this is that in the last 40 years or so, some noted biblical scholars have done some intriguing work in this area, and I want to I want to just talk. Uh, we're not going to get into that any of that real deeply, but I want to just sketch some contours, okay? Um, and I want to preface some of that by saying, because this is important. Um, you know, a lot of theological work is done um, in, in response to some r- relevant issues of of the current day. You know, whenever that happens. And in the last hundred years, let's just pause and and think about what's gone on in the last hundred years in the in the world that we live in. We have we have all seen a great deal of evil in the world. We've had two world wars. We've had all sorts of horrible stuff happen in places like Rwanda and the Middle East. Um, terrible acts of evil and injustice, and all of that has led to the opinion in some places that there there simply has to be some kind of idea that such a thing as judgment judgment the the sovereign declaration that this is good and to be upheld and vindicated and that is evil and must be condemned that has to exist that that's the only alternative to chaos there are simply some things that, that, that we must not tolerate because to do so is to collude with wickedness. And I, and I think instinctively we all know this. So unless we want to conclude that there's not really anything wrong in the world, and I don't know, I don't know who would say that, or that God doesn't mind it very much, and I'm not sure who would say that, we, we've got to have some kind of judgment, Okay. Evil must be identified, named, and dealt with if there is ever to be any kind of reconciliation. And here's where the rubber meets the road, so to speak. When those who have, have acted wickedly refuse to see the point, there can be no reconciliation. And we have to remember that God is utterly committed to set the world right in the end to fix everything that's broken and and restore and renew and recreate this world as he always intended it to be. And we've talked a lot about that in the past. And that that belief is firmly based on the belief of, of God as the creator and on the belief that he is good. So logically, to, to, to set the world right, to fix everything that's broken and, and unjust and 
bad in this world must necessarily involve the elimination of anything and everything that distorts God's good creation, and in particular, of all that defaces and defiles his image-bearing human creatures. In the kingdom of God, there just is no place for genocide, for child prostitution, the, the arrogance of empires, turning souls into commodities or idolizing race or anything else that is devoid of the love and compassion and holiness that characterizes God himself. In the New Testament, there are, there are three glaring things that are consistently said about things like that. First, those flaws in the way this world works, the, 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 they all stem from the primary fault, which is idolatry, which is worshiping that which is not God as if it were. That is the fundamental flaw in all that is wrong. Okay, and that doesn't worshiping doesn't always just mean showing up in a temple and bowing down and offering sacrifices. It means treating it as the most important thing, right? Giving it your allegiance, whatever that is. The second thing that is that is consistently said in the New Testament is that those things all show the telltale telltale marks of subhuman behavior. In other words, it's the it's the failure to fully reflect the image of God. And we're going to say more about that too, but it's the it's the it's missing the mark of the full, free and genuine humanity that God intended for us when he created us. And the regular New Testament word for that in Greek is hamartia, which is the word we translate as sin. And sin by the way, is not just the breaking of arbitrary rules. It's the failure to live up to our design and calling. And then third, it is perfectly possible for that that kind of idolatry and dehumanization to become so ingrained in the life and chosen behavior of an individual and even of groups of people that unless there is some kind of specific turning away from that way of life, those who persist in it are, are conniving at their own ultimate dehumanization. Peter talks about that about it that way, interestingly, in 2 Peter 12. Second, sorry, 2 Peter 2.12. When he says that people like that are like, he, he, he compares them to irrational animals, creatures of instinct who are born to be caught and destroyed because they slander what they do not understand. And then he says that in their own destruction, they too will be destroyed. That is a fascinating um, passage, right? Actually, there's a pretty good illustration of this, if, if you want to look it up. Uh, and it's just an illustration, okay? I want to say that it's it's like a parable, okay? So don't don't take this any farther than I'm taking it, okay? But if you want a visual, if you want just a visual picture of what something like this might look like, um, there, there's actually one available. So you've probably seen pictures floating around the internet of people before and after that they, they have done a deep dive into methamphetamines. Look that up. Um, here's the person before they started doing meth and here they are after. 
um, the, the change is utterly dramatic uh, physically, so much so that they're hardly recognizable as the same people. That's, that's, a, that's an illustration kind of of what's going on. I, and I want to say that, that is the, the persistence and the idolatry of sin. Um, I think that, that can cause exactly that kind of change in a person on the inside to the point where they're barely recognizable as humans, at least not humans in the sense that God wanted us to be. And I think that's what Peter's getting at in 2 Peter 2.12, okay? So all of those ideas form the, the heart of the way in which I personally have come to believe that we today can restate the, the doctrine of final judgment. Again, it just seems impossible to some of us just looking around our world to suppose that there's not going to be some kind of ultimate condemnation, no um, a final loss, if you want to use that term. And as C.S. Lewis put it, no human beings to whom God will eventually say, thy will be done. I, I wish it were otherwise, but when we look around and we see things like we've seen in the last hundred years, things like Auschwitz or the Taliban or uh, the the fact that over 63 million babies have been killed in America by abor- abortion since 1973, right? Which is which is at least 45 times more than all those killed in war in America since 1776, since our nation was founded. All right, all those things and many 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 others. Um, the the proliferation of of the drug trade. Those are the reality of the world in which we live. And and in the face of all that, it is just impossible to believe that there will not be ultimately be some kind of final judgment for that. And and I'm again, let me let me make clear. I'm not saying that that there cannot be forgiveness for individuals if they if they turn from that, if they the, the Bible offers untold hope that we can turn our course around, right? As as individuals, okay. So nothing I just said um, contradicts that. All right. But it is impossible to believe for for people who persist in in that kind of destruction and who empower it in others and who drive the things like the drug trade and the the uh, the, the abortion trade. Things that persistently abuse people who persistently abuse and and mistreat other people. It's impossible to believe that there's not going to be eventually some kind of final judgment. So, if we accept that, if if there is some kind of final judgment, what might that look like? So there are there are three views. Um, that have proliferated since Christianity started, okay? Um, The traditional view is that those who spurn God's uh, offer of redemption and salvation, who refuse to turn from idolatry and wickedness, uh, are held, those people are held forever in conscious torment. Such people will continue to be human beings and will be punished endlessly. 
That's the traditional view. Now, I'm going to say something about that in a minute, but let me just lay the three out there real quick. The second view, um, which has become popular in the last, you know, 100, 200 years maybe, is the view of what we what we know as universalism. Um, the universalists suggest that God will be merciful even to the utterly wicked, uh, to mass murderers, to child rapists. Sometimes they'll, they'll, they'll modify that a bit. All universalists are not created the same, by the way. Okay, so there's a, there's a range of opinion in, in how all this works according to them. But sometimes they modify that a bit to say that God will continue after death to offer all people the chance of repentance until they finally give in. And God overwhelms them with his love and they, they repent and give in to that offer of love. That's the second view. The third view is kind of a, a middle ground um, view offered by people who sometimes are called conditionalists, okay? And they propose, uh, and this is actually kind of interesting, um, they propose what they call conditional immortality. In other words, that those who persistently refuse God's love and the way of this life in the present world will just simply cease to exist. Uh, immortality, they point out, and, and they're in line with what Paul says in 1 Timothy 6.16 here. Uh, they would point out that immortality is not an innate human characteristic. It is something that, as Paul says, only God possesses by right. And, and, and thus, it's a, it's a gift that God can choose to bestow or withhold. So according to that theory, God will simply not confer immortality on those who in this life continue impenitently to worship idols and therefore destroy their own humanness. That view is sometimes known as annihilationism, Okay, that such people will just simply cease to exist. Okay, so those are the three main views. And you might find something else, but if you look closely, it'll probably be a subset of one of those three, okay? Uh, those are the three mainstream views. views. But there is another option. And um, the, the, this option was um, first pr proposed, at least first that I heard, um, by um, N.T. Wright in his book, Surprised by Hope. And I'll link. That's been a, that's been a, a very influential book to me. Um, and there's a link in the show notes to that. I find this view quite compelling. And I'm going to sketch it out for you a little, maybe a little simpler than, than, uh, than he did. Um, to me, it solves more problems than it creates. That, that, that's, a, that's an interesting thing to say. Um, I, I have found a lot of things, a lot of, um, in, in theology, a lot of uh, views of well, how this might work and how that more, might work. Um, some, some views create, they don't really solve many problems or they solve one, but they create two more, right? Um, a, a lot of that goes on in, in theology and I'm, I'm, I'm generally frustrated by alternative views of things that solve, um, um, maybe solve one problem and create two or three more. This view of, uh, that, that N.T. Wright has proposed to me solves more problems than it creates. And in my view, it deals with all the biblical texts fairly, um, and it's I find it fairly persuasive, okay? Um, and, and I'll say more about that in a minute, but let me sketch it out for you. 
So the the uh, well, and he says, and I agree, his view combines the best parts of uh, view number one and view number three. Okay, I I think he would agree. He would say, and I would agree, view number two doesn't hold any water. Okay, that's that's my view. I think he would say that. I don't remember him actually saying that. The view of universalism. Um, so the the greatest objection to the traditional view, and we alluded to this at the start of the podcast today, the, the one, the view that most Christians, I think, have inherited, the greatest objection to that has come from the deep discomfort that many feel at the idea that God, that the, the God who the Bible consistently describes as being a God of overwhelming and unending love, to, 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 th- to think that that kind of God would maintain what amounts to some kind of torture chamber in the dungeon of his kingdom palace, a, a concentration camp in the midst of his beautiful countryside, that's a, that's a tough hurdle to get over for a lot of people. Um, and, and one of the things I think about, I think there's biblical evidence um, for, for that. Um, one of the things I think about a lot when I think about this, and N.T. Wright doesn't mention this, but this is this is convicting to me. Um, the story of David in First Chronicles 21, um, this has always been such a fascinating story to me. It's the story of when David decides to take the census of his military men. And um, that's a that's a sketchy thing because it seems like what David's doing is trying to um, figure out how many men he has and um, uh, um, draw his confidence. In, in, instead of drawing his confidence from God, drawing his confidence from the strength of his own military. That's a sketchy position to be in, okay? And I could say a lot about how that kind of temptation carries itself out in our modern lives today, but I'm not going to do that. Um but interestingly, he, David decides to, to take this census, and he, interestingly, his highest-ranking military leader did not think that was a good idea and urges David not to do this. Well, David goes ahead with it, and we're told, not surprisingly, that David's decision to do this was also evil in God's sight, and we're told that because of that, God afflicted Israel. Well, David repents. Uh, but God sends a prophet to David to offer him a choice of how he's going to be punished. Actually, he offers him three choices. And the Lord says, I'm offering you three cho- choices. Choose one of them for yourself, and I will do it to you. Okay? How do you want to be punished? That's what God's saying. And the three choices, which are detailed First 1 Chronicles 21, verse 12, are, are this. David can choose three years of famine, three months of of devastation by your foes with the sword of your enemy overtaking you or three days of the sword of the Lord. In other words, some kind of plague on the land with the angel of the Lord bringing destruction to the whole territory of Israel. So, So there's that. Those are the three choices. And David's answer, which is so telling and so relevant, I think, to this discussion... David says in verse 13, he says, Please let me fall into the Lord's hands, 
because his mercies are very great. But don't let me fall into human hands. Now that is fascinating to me because of what it reveals about David's understanding of God. David understood at a, at a very deep level that punishment from God would have an end. It wouldn't be as severe as the carnage that would be leveled against him by man or even by nature. And the reason that's so, David believed, was because God's mercies are very great. So David's view of all this and and what undergirds his willingness to cast himself on the Lord's judgment is rooted in in, in his belief of the nature of God, that God is a, a, a God of mercy and love, a God that punishes, yes, but a God who does not punish to excess. And I think that is, that is a significant thing, okay? However, however much we tell ourselves that God must condemn evil if he is a good God and, and that those who love God must endorse that condemnation, which I agree with, as soon as these, these pictures that, that come up in our minds of, of hell present themselves to us, I think we all sort of kind of turn away in disgust. Now, the, the conditionalist, conditionalist avoids that by kind of marginalizing those uh, scriptural passages that appear to talk about a continuing, some kind of continuing state for those who reject the worship of the, of the true God in the way, uh, in the way of, of, of living as image-bearing humans, which follows from that. But we can't marginalize those passages, okay? We have to allow those passages to have their say in forming our understanding of what final judgment might look like. We need to have our eyes wide open, and we need to take the whole scriptural record seriously. We can't pick and choose, okay? And that's my, that's my view on everything, okay? We have to let the whole Bible inform our understandings of how, how things are. So... With all of that kind of firmly in mind, there, there has to be some kind of judgment, okay? There, there is some sense in which it's, it's, it looks like it's going to be continu- a, a continual thing, but, but yet God is a God of mercy and love, and the idea of him um, torturing people for all eternity just doesn't... That seems to be at odds with with the way God is is portrayed in Scripture. Okay, so with all of that held kind of firmly in our minds, we arrive at the following possibility, and this is this is N.T. Wright's thesis, which I think does justice both to the the key biblical passages and the realities of human life and the and the horror that we all see and have seen over our history, mostly dreamed up by other humans. So, when human beings give their heartfelt allegiance to and, and worship that which is not God, they progressively cease to reflect the image of God. Uh, faithful Christians become more like Jesus, right? We, we, we all know that. If you're, a, if you're a growing Christian, you're going to become more and more like Jesus in the way you live. The fruit of the Spirit is going to become more evident in you, and, and you're going to... Um, 
more and more increasingly display the aroma of Christ. You're going to you're going to look and 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 act like Jesus more and more in the world as you grow. Faithful Christians become more like Jesus, while these kind of people that we're talking about become less like Jesus. Okay. One of the primary laws of human life is that you you become like what you worship. And what's more, you reflect what you worship, not only back to the object itself, but also outward to the world around. Think about this. Those who worship money increasingly define themselves in terms of money and increasingly treat other people as creditors, debtors, partners, or customers rather than as human beings. Those who worship sex define themselves in terms of it. Their their preferences, their practices, their past histories, and they increasingly treat other people as actual or potential sexual objects. Those who worship power define themselves in terms of it, and they treat other people as either collaborators, competitors, or pawns, okay? Those and and many other forms of idolatry combine in a thousand ways, all of them damaging to the image-bearing quality of God's created human beings and those whose lives we touch. N.T. Wright's suggestion, and I'll give it to you in his words, is that, quote, it is possible for human beings to so continue down that road, to so refuse all whisperings of good news, all glimmers of the true light, all promptings to turn and go the other way, all signposts to the love of God, that after death they become, at last, by their own effective choice, beings that once were human, but now are not creatures that have ceased to bear the image of God at all. So with the death of the body in which they inhabited God's good world, uh, in, in which the, the, the flickering flame of goodness had not been completely snuffed out, when they die, they pass simultaneously not only beyond hope, but beyond pity. So in this view, in N.T. Wright's view, there is no concentration camp in the beautiful countryside, no torture chamber in God's kingdom palace. Those creatures that still exist now exist in an ex-human state. They don't any longer reflect their maker in any meaningful sense, and because that's so, They can no longer inspire in themselves or others the natural sympathy that some feel even for a hardened criminal. Okay, now let me me say this as we kind of wrap this up. This is a theory. This is absolutely not territory that anyone can claim to have mapped out and N.T. Wright says that too, okay? This is not, he, he is not at all saying, I know this is right. 
He's looking at all the evidence and trying to come up with a theory that fits the evidence better than anything else. Some, some Christians, he says, believe that Jesus has been to hell and back, but he hasn't left us a travel brochure. <laughs> and he would say, and he has says, that the last thing he wants is for anyone to suppose that he or anyone else knows very much at all about all of this. And to that I would wholeheartedly agree. But he and I find ourselves driven by the New Testament and the sober realities of, of the world around us to exactly this kind of resolution uh, to one of the, the, the darkest theological mysteries that we have. But as we wrap up, okay, um, I'd like to remind us all that the gospel message of the New Testament is one of absolute hope. And this is the way I want to end this discussion. There is, there is no one alive whose heart cannot be changed if they're at least a little bit willing to lean in that direction. <clears throat> and, and, I, and I will say, and this is kind of in support of, of N.T. Wright's view, there's a, and this is a mystery, okay? But there's, a, there's a, a, a curious and frustrating passage at the end of the book of Revelation that may have something to add to all of this. And it's frustrating because it only gives us some hints and doesn't explain anything about this as clear as we would like. But if you read Revelation 21 and 22, and I would urge you to read Revelation 21 and 22, take your time. After the new heaven and the new earth and the arrival of the heavenly city of Jerusalem from heaven, where God says that at last his dwelling is among humans, it seems clear, particularly toward the end of chapter 21, that there are some categories of people still, that are in some way outside the city gates. And frankly, I don't know what precisely to make of that. And in Revelation chapter 22, John is shown the, the river of the water of life, clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb down the middle of the city's main street. And the tree of life was on each side of the river, bearing 12 kinds of fruit, producing its fruit every month, and then he says that the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations and there will no longer be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city and his servants will, will worship him. And the big question, at least to me about all that, is what, what nations are left to heal in God's new world? And of course, the word nations is always biblical code for Gentiles, non-Israelites, people who don't worship God, who, who now would include all those who do not follow Jesus, Israel's king. Because as the New Testament makes crystal clear, all Christians are today the new Israel, reconstituted around Jesus, Israel's king. So again, what, what nations, what outsiders to God's family are left in the new creation for the leaves of the tree of life to heal? Well, neither I nor anyone else knows the definitive answer to those questions. But what I do know, what Scripture asserts front to back, is that God is a God of both justice and love. He will do what's right, and it will be good. And I am quite comfortable leaving a lot of the details to him. I don't have to know how all this is going to work out. But I think the important things to say at the end of this whole discussion are, again, 
the New Testament, the, the Bible in general, is a, the story is one of absolute hope. And, and heaven and hell are not what the whole game is about anyway. The New Testament, true to its Old Testament roots, regularly insists that the central framing question is one of the steadfast purpose of God to rescue and restore the whole world, the, the entire cosmos. And the destiny of individual human beings must be understood within that context. And part of the whole point of being saved in the present is so that we can play a role in that rescue and restoration. The Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 through 7 are the, are the agenda for us as kingdom people. They're not simply about rules on how to behave. They are about the way Matthew 5 through 7, the Sermon on the Mount, including the Beatitudes, all those things that Jesus says there are, all of them are about the way Jesus wants to rule the world by bringing healing and hope, rescue and recreation to the whole world through his kingdom priests. And that is you and that's me. And with that, I want to thank you for joining us today. I hope you'll join us again next week. And next week is going to be, um, well, I don't know what next week is going to be yet. So we'll just leave it at that. I haven't figured that out yet. As always, we should, we'd appreciate it if you tell others about the podcast. If you enjoy the show, please uh, subscribe, rate, and review us on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Amazon Music, wherever fine podcasts are found. Um, please visit our Facebook page for the Jesus Society podcast and uh, check out our website, thejesussociety.com. Uh, you can all fi also find us on YouTube and Odyssey, and if you search for us there, you'll find us. If you'd like to support uh, the show and our related ministry, please uh, click on the support TJS link on the Jesus Society website to find out how. Contact me if you have any questions. Uh, you can do that through our website as well. Thank you for listening, and remember, you are greatly loved. Thank you.